This is Classical Reboot. Progressive talks on Western classical music. First off, there's kind of a couple layers to this, and I just want to like introduce them and we'll see where this goes. The first layer is just the, the education. Yeah. The education is entirely focused on pre-World War II, pretty much, mostly focusing in the classical romantic period, so right. late 18th through the beginning of the 19th century. That's the bulk of performing repertoire for any instrument outside of, like, saxophone and percussion. Yeah. Yep. And double bass, for what it's worth. <laughs> they actually have solos now, but that's a that's a modern phenomenon. <laughs> um, but when you but when you talk about like classical music, when you talk about chamber music, when you talk about orchestral repertoire, solo repertoire, all of these things, most of what I have to perform and what a lot of people have to perform is the three Bs: Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, and then you have Mozart as well. It, it's a very circular logic kind of a way of learning because you learn the masters right and like i I hate to like throw this grotesque term out there but it's like very masturbatory like you're very oh yeah kind of a giant circle jerk amongst these like you know genius composers and and i mean i'll throw this out there it's not to say that their music isn't good like there's a reason why it stands the test of time but yeah there's a reason i'm playing the bach cello suites 250 years after he wrote them right right there's a reason there's a really good reason Right. Actually, it's 300 years since he wrote them. Yes. Well, I'll be. Um, <laughs> in any case, like, you know, there, there's a reason we're doing that mm-hmm. because it's great music. But we don't perform new things. And performers, especially, I think, are wary of performing new things. Yeah. They don't like it because it's different. Right. And I think a lot of, I think a lot of that comes down to. There's a very large shift in aesthetics. Yeah. Once you basically start the second Viennese school. Yes. And um, yeah, absolutely. And then you you start to see aesthetics continue to change, continue to change, and it's just one of those things where I think it, it performers just seem to be rooted in this idea of only doing. Um, stuff that is standard and some of that is like they want to get paid yeah and some of that is they don't want to do something they don't know because it could you know right be i don't know it just wouldn't get them as much so interest from other people right so how um far back do you want to go into this because i think that like you said there are many many layers to this elitism or this um uh, affinity for um, pre-World War II classical music, which is often influenced by German romantic composers. Um, yeah. I think a large um, figurehead we can kind of pin on a lot of this is Wagner. Um, Wagner, he, definitely. You know, um, he, he purported a lot of Germanic ideas in his music and also, um, if you're not aware, very anti-Semitic ideas in his music. Um, but that it, and it's, it's on record that, and you, you mentioned the second Viennese school, it's, it's on record saying that Arnold Schoenberg's 
um, adventure into free atonality was due to Wagner's music and his use of chromaticism. And I guess you could throw Strauss in there as well. I was about to say, you, you definitely have Strauss as a right. continuation of this excessive chromaticism. Talk about Richard Strauss, not Johann Strauss, the Waltz King. Uh, don't get yes. me wrong love no me. no you're you're right I'm just i'm just dealing with you saying that sorry. processing um, um yes we are talking about richard strauss right the the composer that i hate because i have to play don juan and einheldenleben on auditions oh dude that that ba- that i i totally hear you out the bass excerpt for einheldenleben Ein Heldenleben, sorry, is that's a bear. That is a bear yeah. of an excerpt. Like holy shit! Um, <laughs> no, it's 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 fun yeah. that I get to learn those things. I remember, like I was. Oh, and Don Quixote. Don Quixote is another one. He throws you in some nasty keys for the strings in that one too. Um, he just doesn't care anymore. No, it's just yeah. Well, and again, though, I mean, not to go too much on the rabbit trail, but like you get to this point in like German romantic music where. Uh, it becomes so chromatic uh, that the key signatures are almost more of a hindrance because you're you have this key signature with like five flats, but you know all the accidentals are basically like they're canceled out, and you're like, all right, dude, like what, like what's the point? What do you want from me? Yeah, just, like, just tell me what you want. <laughs> I'll do it. I'll do whatever you want. Yeah, but this is which a... is where Hindemith is nice, where he just like didn't use a key signature. Right. He's just like, I'm just gonna put in what I want. Right, exactly. But like that's so that's a great example actually of Work a like wrong. romantic German convention of like the use of a key signature that eventually got you know nixed because the the music became so chromatic and um, it might have a tonal center, but the use of a key signature was more um, of a hindrance than it was helpful to the performer. Yeah, I think another, so like you you mentioned Wagner is a big influence in this, and I think the other large influence is actually outside of like composers. Okay. It's the the German music historians. Okay. The people that like codified all of this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Schools of German music and the timeline and the lineage of German music. That's where you run into this. You know, I, I think that's where you start to get these issues. You have this movement of academics. You have this rise of uh, music historians and academia that's starting to push this German exceptionalism, basically, yeah. in, in music. What's that uh, called? Germanic. Actually, I should say Germanic yeah. exceptionalism because I, it, it, the, the Germany isn't really a country yet, and it's... Right. including Vienna and Austria as a whole. So. What, isn't there a... Um, I feel like that there's a term, and maybe it was just like the, the idea of the genius. Well, that was more of the... The emphasis of the genius was a very like classical idea, right? Like classical period idea? Um, yeah, I think there's... the No, the, the idea of a of a genius of like this savant godlike kind of thing starts yeah. with like Mozart and Beethoven. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And, and especially with Beethoven, it's the composer as the ultimate like 
artistic expression of music and stuff. And like this idea that this composer gets these ideas out of the air, like kind of gifted from God, basically again, very religious society. So you get these things gifted (laughs) from God and you, you write them down and it becomes gospel basically. That's what the composer is that I think that really starts to take off with, with Beethoven. Uh Obviously we see Mozart as a child prodigy, as a genius, he was known as one. He was seen as one. But I think Beethoven is when you start to really get this idea of the composer is like a conduit with God almost. And they're this hero figure. They're this um, pseudo-religious you know, expression and it's, it's, of it's, art, basically. Yeah, it almost coincides with the uh, philosophy of like the Ubermensch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is basically just like the superhuman or the 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 the, the pe- which in it at its roots is incredibly racist and very uh <laughs> is very it, it's very flawed like it's not something I purport but again um I'm gonna bring it back to what I said about um, bringing it to Wagner who was he he him and Brahms were alive at the same time and Brahms was much more about the romantic expression Wagner is about creating this like ultimate art form that included um yeah the theater the the voice the orchestra the costumes the um the art aspect of everything um yeah yeah uh uh, i know we've talked about this before the yes the gesamtkunstwerk right correct so that um that for me when I see composers of the early 20th century be, I, I guess, use Wagner's music as a model for how they want to um, progress music, there's no way that that baggage can't um, also come along with it, and if not, become even more um, accentuated. Right, and I think the the thing that happens there is that you... So moving from more of an artistic concept to kind of what we were actually talking about throughout the years, this idea has been perverted and distorted. And I mean, Gesamtskunstwerk has some of its own problems already, Mm -hmm. uh, even more so than just, you know, Wagner and anti-Semitism inherently do Um, and racism. I mean, just all around. Right. Just he, he only believed in Germanic, you know, purity and all that kind of stuff. Right. Right. Hitler was a big fan. So, you know, all you need to know about the guy. Um, (laughs) So moving on from that, like, I mean, outside of like those those types of ideas, I think just the the idea that classical music is an elitist thing starts in this. Yep. Yep. And progresses, festers and grows to become something where this is the ideal music. The ideal music is late romantic music. Right. It's not what's going on now. And so we're going to, so let's bring it back to our original point of education. So when we teach kids, you know, young kids, I remember in my elementary school classes, that's, that's what we learned about was, um, a a large majority was early German romantic composers. We learned about Mozart, we learned about Beethoven, probably mentioned Wagner in there somewhere, probably Brahms as well. Um, 
I I do remember though. I had a really cool uh, teacher, and we she actually had a huge jazz background, so we actually learned a lot about um, jazz, which makes sense because we go to school in America, and jazz is an American art form. So um, I think it should absolutely be a part of the um, you know elementary school curriculum on music, whether or not you're going to go study it. It's you know it's there, but um, so that so that's just in the education. That education then bleeds into major orchestras, major opera houses, major films, you know, for that matter. Absolutely. Um, so that's a you're talking about your your undergrad classes in music history, right? When you were talking about. Oh no, I was talking about like leg- legitimately like in elementary school. Oh oh sorry sorry. Yeah, um, yeah no no. <laughs> oh that's cool. I mean I. I can't even remember what I learned about elementary school and such. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's just something I remember, like that and the recorder. That's cool. It's I like, mean, that's that's like... awesome. That's like a really, really good way of teaching. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. There, there was one thing you said right at the end there, like the. Uh, oh God, what was it? Uh, just I don't know. the major orchestras, the. Um, yeah, all all the major performance venues are continue to purport these. Um, yeah. are these these composers that are um, pre-World War II. Yeah, and I think one of the weird things about that is that it's like, it's it's pseudo-financial. Yeah, yep. And it, it's, it's not 100% pseudo-financial, but it's like 60% pseudo-financial. Like, there is this part of it that's like legitimately financial because if you didn't play, like, Beethoven over an entire season, people would lose interest in your major American orchestra. Right, right. I think that's a fact. I don't. I don't think that would. There's very few orchestras in America that are not playing um, music that predates World War II. Um, just to throw one out there, is Albany Symphony. They do a great job of programming new music. With that being said, though, they will still program Beethoven. Um, yeah. And not to say they shouldn't. Like they, they right. absolutely should program these things. The problem is the disparity, right? And the and the right. thing where you where it's like we're we're not as performers, we aren't adventurous enough. I don't think. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I think that's kind of what I want to get to is like there's the education aspect, yes. and then there's the just being adventurous. And being adventurous has two. Can we? I think main things where it's yeah. either a financial adventure or it's it's because you don't want to play the new thing. So can we talk about the perspective of the performer and their career actually, because so you're a conservatory trained performer, you're going through the, you know, you're going through the gauntlet, you're, you're studying, you're doing excerpts. You are told that this is what orchestras want to hear. You are, you are told to not, I've heard people say that their instructors explicitly tell them not to play new music. I think I've heard that from you actually. Um, and, um that that has come up a little bit yeah not yeah. like new music but like student compositions actually right right which yeah exactly like he, he encourages me to play like crumb right which isn't sure. new it's like 1955 right but it's post-world war ii <laughs> so you know if we're if we're gonna create that new right if we're gonna create that like post and pre kind of thing um yeah. but that my, my point is it's it's all connected. And I mean, I'm sure you can elaborate more on that point. Yeah, well, like, okay, so let's take let's take orchestral auditions as an example here, because that's what a lot of people assume they're going to go into with music. Yeah. 
I know that's not what I want to do. Do I have an Excel file with all the orchestras that I can think of and their audition requirements and their, you know, audition dates and stuff? Yep. Yes, because, you know, sometimes having dental is nice. <laughs> you know, like they, yeah. they have great benefits and they're unionized and they're right. a contract. So if you can get in, it's good. But let, let's take the audition process. There is not a single one of the orchestras that I have in my Excel file from like Fargo Moorhead's, the Fargo Symphony or Fargo Moorhead Symphony to the Chicago Symphony, like in terms of like, you know, that, that kind of breadth and contractual obligation that requires a modern piece to be played. They don't. They want, they, they want, they do not. They only want. They want, if they want anything, they want the first movement of a standard concerto. And for cello, that's Dvorak, uh, Dvorak, Elgar, Haydn, Shostakovich, Haydn. Yeah. Haydn, C or D. They usually give you a choice between Haydn, C or D. How generous of them. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> um, but it, it's like, the, it is handful. Yeah. And then excerpts. Yeah. And those excerpts are by and large... Don Juan, Beethoven five, yeah. second movement, yeah. uh, Mendelssohn scherzo from Midsummer Night's Dream, yeah. the, the standard string excerpt, I think. Will you, get and like, then, uh, will you get like a Prokofiev or something like that every now and then? Uh, there's a Prokofiev excerpt. I for, I it's like Peter and the Wolf or something? Five, no, somebody. Five would make sense because it's an E flat minor, which is. A bitch I think it, I think it's five is yeah. kind of a standard excerpt. Not asked for a ton. The most asked for excerpts are definitely uh, Beethoven five movement two. That's like that's like the cello excerpts, mm-hmm. and th- those are the variations. Um, and then Don Juan's up there. There are a couple uh, Mozart ones. I want to correct myself. Um, it's in B flat major. It is number six. That is an E flat minor. I am sorry. Anyway, oh, okay. <laughs> I think it's five. I don't know. Yeah. There's a Shostakovich there. And yeah. then there's solos. Um, sure. But those solos are like Rossini, William Tell, Brahms Piano Concerto Number no. Two, Third Movement, which is the movement right. that Brahms forgot. He was writing a piano concerto and wrote a cello solo. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote he like was, half the movement is a cello solo. Yeah, I'm not went, kidding. He went from uh, he was just going from a uh, full orchestra and he was just thinking of chamber music. It's fine. Don't worry about it's it. It's just it's. Ah. <laughs> I mean, some will ask you to play uh, like a chamber music piece. They'll ask you to play yeah. um, something, and they'll bring in musicians if you make it to the finals and stuff, and they'll they'll sure. have you play sure. like a Mozart string quartet together. Yeah, it's yeah, usually sure. Mozart. Um, how, I'm curious. I don't know if you know this. Um, how does that differ for opera? Um, the the repertoire slightly. They're um, for cello, there are a couple different excerpts you'd ask for. Okay. Um, like know. there's a yeah. Tannhäuser, okay. a Wagner Tannhäuser excerpt that would definitely be asked for in opera. Okay. I've looked into opera. They usually use a lot of the orchestral stuff. Okay. The solos will differ okay. if you're auditioning oh. principal because oh, like yeah, okay. Posca Act Three has a cello quintet opening. Okay. Um, to Act Three, so like there's a there's a solo there that you might learn, or they might ask you to do some other stuff. Yeah. They, yeah. they might ask for something from like a Mozart yeah. opera 
Yeah. Just just because. Because it's like, if you ask for something from a Mozart opera, you can kind of cover your bases of like Mendelssohn Scherzo or Mozart Symphony 35. You can get kind of the same yeah, yeah, absolutely. information. Um, I, yeah, absolutely. I had a point to make about the, oh, you're cutting out here. Wait till you're not cut out anymore. Now you're back. I didn't catch that. Yep. Nope, we're good. Um, Talking about opera. So these, so, so the large point that this, or just purporting that these excerpts are what's going to land you a gig that's going to give you a stable career in music because i think that's actually a large part of it is like when someone decides they want to go into a career of music career in uh, professional music especially as an orchestral player they are immediately told and immediately informed of the competitiveness and how difficult it is to get consistent work so, I think also especially as a string player. Yeah. Yeah. It, it gets just oh, maybe not especially as a string player. Actually, am yeah, I, I think say, that I yeah. think that that extends to any orchestral instrument. Right. I, I would say uh, I would say it gets incredibly competitive for the winds. Absolutely. Well, that was that was what stopped me from doubling right, down on the statement. Right. Right. Because they have so few spots. But it's but it's not to say that it, it is incredibly competitive. Um, and you're told that this is, you know, once you reach this, you know, stand or this life, you're, you've, you've made it, or you've, <laughs> you, you've, you know, you yeah. have security, and you. Um, That's a big part of. Right. I, I think I think the musician world, especially in the classical world, is like you. You get an orchestral job, you now have your steady. You know, it's not a nine to five, but it is the musician nine to five. Right. And it's it's this idea that now you've got your schedule, your benefits, your contract. You can't be fired unless you, right? Like literally, you're, shit you're, on stage. yeah, you're a union. Like I mean, yep. oh, you're so unionized. It's yep. beautiful. Yep. So, <laughs> the job security is unreal. Right. In a professional orchestra. Once you pass, I think it's three years for like the Chicago Symphony. Yeah. Yeah. Once you pass three years, like they, it's it's near impossible to fire you. But how many? How many people that you know that have been in the orchestra for 10, 15 plus years and they just, they can't stand it anymore, you know, after a certain... All of them? Yeah, exactly. Like, like uh, <laughs> here, okay, so I uh, I started lessons with my with my graduate school, school professor, and what he says to me one day, like, I think it was like our, our second lesson or something. Yeah. And it was before they... He plays in the Chicago Symphony. Yeah, right, right. And it was before they were going back and starting the new season. This was after they had finished Ravinia, before he was going back to their regular season with the Chicago Symphony. And he said, I I asked him, you know, just came in for the lesson, asked him, hey, how's it going? He's like, ah, fine. You know, I've got one more week of freedom and then it's back to the meat grinder. Uh. <laughs> it's like, it, it wasn't really said with like that much of like a twinkle or a smile. Yeah. You know, it was just oh. like, it, it was like pretty much just like, I am going back to the meat grinder yeah. and I do have 
one more week of freedom. The guy also has two kids and teaches right. probably 15 students. So, I mean, he's, got, wonder- he's, he's easily got like himself carved out an 80 hour work week, you right. know, but like right. playing cello, man. You got, yeah, you got to wonder though how if he prefers, um, and this is a total sidebar, like if he actually just prefers to like teach students and like do the thing rather than like also like having this gig at. You got I'm, maybe my point is like is all the joy sucked out of it? Like does he? I, yeah. I feel like if it was all sucked out, he would he would stop, but maybe not. I mean, if all the joy is sucked out of three hundred k a year, do you stop? Fair point. <laughs> this guy's played in the, this guy's played in the symphony for twenty five years. Right. He's he's at their absolute maximum for minimum payment. Yep. Like, yeah, you don't just leave that on the table when you've got two kids yeah, that need yeah. to go to college eventually. Of course, course. yeah, you know, so, he's got two preteen kids. Like, I, I, I don't know, like why? Right. I I I get it. And, Whoa, and burnouts yeah. are real. Burnouts are real thing. And that's a whole another episode talking yeah, about burnout. Yeah, yeah. But I think I think there is something where he's rejuvenated by students and being with students and I students bet he's rejuvenated by his students and things outside of the orchestra just like yeah. you know that yeah. inspire him and i think that this actually segues perfectly into and the next like maybe point or comment that i had to say is like it really all comes down to money doesn't it mm-hmm. it really does absolutely yeah there is there is not a lot in this conversation that doesn't come down to money right because ultimately like as much as it's it's yeah, if you want to get uh, an orchestral job or even a university job as a professor, yep. what you're going to go out and yep. do is play standard repertoire, win competitions, build a standard resume, apply, get in, audition. Basically, for both of those things, you audition. Um, I've been part of a couple hiring processes, actually, oh, yeah. for, for cello faculty and that, that's just was that, I mean, your, that's, was that at your undergrad yeah that was in oh, my undergrad. okay and like that's it, it's as a student you you yeah as a student you I, was, took I was lessons part, yeah. with them and you gave yeah feedback yeah and, on and it, did, you do master classes you do very public master classes okay. in front of the hiring board okay yeah like it's like that's their audition is doing a master class except they're not playing they're teaching that's right. their and that's, i think that's a, like a very reasonable thing too oh though. absolutely like, yeah, it, yeah. but it's you know it's it, all, all of this boils down to you have to do standard things to get those jobs, and right. those are the those are the, basically the two most consistent avenues of employment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You want if you want a consistent job as a musician, you become an orchestral musician, or you become a professor. Right. So are, you, and and so let's let's take a let's take an outlier let's take an outlier example like someone like um, Yo Yo Ma who I know we talk about him a lot, but I. Just, uh, yeah. You know. I love him as a human. Don't love his cello playing as much as I perhaps should, but my God, the man is a wonderful. I think his cello playing is fine. Um, oh no, his, I, his I, cello playing is like top ten all time. Yeah, for me, from like all the recordings I listen to, yeah, he might be top five. Depends on what he's playing, but like sure. realistically, incredible cellist, incredible musician. But yeah. As a, Lost you. Sorry. Waiting for you to get back. Oh. Did you get that? Um, maybe not. <laughs> no, maybe not? Oh, okay. Well, here, I'll, I'll try it again. Okay. 
Um, so my what? So I want to take Yo Yo Ma as like a a weird outlier example because everyone right. everyone knows him. I would say the general populace knows him from his cello suites, which is standard repertoire. Right. What a lot of people don't know him for is his work with the uh, Silk Road Ensemble, his work with Goat Rodeo, his improvised stuff, which is also yeah. awesome. His um, performance is a, he has a Astor Piazzolla CD. That's one of the main reasons I love the cello. Yeah. Like I got that CD as a kid and it was amazing. Sure. Yeah, totally. Um, and so it just, I, I think that really drives the point home of it's, and this will probably bring us into this next point of what the populace thinks of when they think of classical music is they think of Yo-Yo Ma playing the Bach cello suites. Absolutely. And they think of they think of Yo-Yo Ma playing the Bach cello suites and they think of Leonard Bernstein conducting the New York Philharmonic. Absolutely. Although I would argue that in a weird way, Leonard Bernstein made it more, not more accessible, but he he was more active in trying to like reach the general population of the United States, at least America. Um, of New York, I think, especially. Especially New York, to educate them about classical music and the yes. and the the impact that it can have on um, any, any, you know, population. I think Yo-Yo Ma has done just as much in that regard in a different yeah. way. Okay. By yeah. establishing the Silk Road Ensemble. Okay, yeah. Because totally. he takes, yeah, so, so Leonard Burns, Bernstein, for example, you know, he, he's got the New York Philharmonic and he's doing the uh, young people's concerts and those lectures, the Harvard lectures, right. very famous, available on YouTube. People love them. If you follow classical music, they get brought up a lot yeah. in pedagogy and, you know, how to interest kids in music. Those are all still couched very much so, I think, in the Grand Masters and in the Western classical tradition. Yep. He does involve some newer stuff in them. You almost have this. You have this dichotomy of the Grand Masters pre World War Two, then you have like this new resurgence of the Grand Masters post World War Two. Right, and then what I think what I think Yo Yo Ma does with the Silk Road Ensemble is he takes it. He takes what Ernstine is doing and brings it to non Western music. Yeah, he combines. He, he creates the Silk Road Ensemble, which involves. Players from Spain playing, you know, I believe it's northern Spain playing bagpipes, mm. um, which is a local instrument to that area. I think it's Galicia. Okay. Anyway, probably <laughs> said that wrong. I don't speak Spanish. Um, there's uh, Iranian players. There are Indian music, Indian classical musicians. There are. Uh, Chinese, Japanese, there are all sorts of things, and they, and they all combine using, all of these things. And they're using traditional instruments, right? Right, they're using traditional instruments from all over, as well as traditional Western instruments right. to create music. And I think that's a really cool thing. I saw the Silk Road Ensemble when they came through ah, St. Paul as a kid. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. I bet that uh, was really cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was a really fun concert. I also... Yeah, there, there's. I have a lot of stories about concerts that I went to at Orchestra Hall. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, for those of that know, do not know, uh, the per, the performance venue of Minnesota Orchestra is Orchestra Hall. It is this awesome, cool, oh, it's, incredibly diverse 
um, con- like you walk in and I don't think an orchestra is about to perform on it. It's just like a, it's just a stage where yeah. I could see any ensemble. I could see fucking Metallica just like shredding on that stage, you know. If, yeah, if it's such a cool, it's such a cool performance venue, and the renovations have been worth it. Yeah, yeah. and it's it's such a it, honestly, I just love the the Twin Cities music scene. Yeah. It's incredible. Um, oh, on that note, we're we're talking. I mean, this isn't really. Yeah, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna change gears without using the clutch. So the Minnesota <laughs> Opera. Yeah, yeah. Every year does a new opera. They do. Yep, yep. They just, do. Just to kind of talk about like a, a, perform and, a performing group that is willing to step and outside. And they do six operas group. of major. Yes. yes. They, I mean, they're probably tier two opera yeah. in the country because yeah. they're not the lyric or the Met. <laughs> or Seattle. The next tier, Houston. Houston would be above them. Or I'm are sorry, they on Houston's level? Or, I was gonna say not Seattle, um, San Francisco. Oh, uh, San Francisco Opera, LA. Yeah, yeah. LA doesn't have a. No, it's they, it, they don't have a great opera. California is weird because it's like LA Orchestra and then San Francisco Opera. Like they yeah. and like LA does have an opera and it's fine, and San Francisco does have a symphony and it's fine. But like LA, uh, I, I would like, argue that the San Francisco Symphony with Tilson Thomas as their director is better than fine but he's leaving so who gives who there cares? you go i actually didn't know uh was it is it michael tilson thomas that was directing it yeah oh who knew all right i, wasn't uh, I did because i saw him in vienna conducting a vienna oh, film all right cool is that that concert asleep that yeah, i was gonna say is that the one he fell asleep to <laughs> yes i'm like <laughs> tilson thomas performing baller i think it was baller nine <laughs> and i fell asleep also saw it backstage after the performance what? Yeah. Oh, I also saw Yusha Wong and Leonidas Kavakos what? play chamber music in that's, Vienna. That's it cool. Comes in house. <laughs> I have their signatures on uh, the ticket. Um, <laughs> I'm just bragging now. I'm just bragging about no, Vienna. No, you're, yeah. um, you're good. No, but like the Minnesota Opera is a major opera performing group in the yeah. country. Yep. And they do like six operas a year, and one of those it's is a new work. work. Yeah. And they, they commission works, and like they do yeah. stuff like that. So it's. They're, yeah. I mean, that's just a really cool thing, and it's a really big deal, right? So we we have this issue with Western classical music, with it being purported and or supported or being entirely dependent on large donors and money. Yes. And those donors, it, it's, it's a business. And, and the business model is you play music that people know, people will come and watch it, and then that will give you money. But fun fact, and this is, this is a through and through fact, is that ticket sales at best at a sold out concert of any major concert hall in the United States, be it the Met, be it the Lyric in Chicago, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, you know, Carnegie Hall in New York only covers about 30% of overhead if it's a sold-out concert, which to me that just screams that, yes, it's an important thing for people to come see the music, obviously. However, the, you know, and so 30% comes from t- ticket sales. The other 70% is donors. 
And so it's this. It's there this, is actually one percent of government um, uh, <laughs> oh, subsidy, oh, oh, right, right. which I'm people sorry. I'm, I'm bitch sorry. and moan about. I'm sorry. Yes, Why the, do we uh, fund the arts, right? The uh, National Endowment for the Arts, which constitutes um, a laughable amount of money um, for the arts oh, that happen in America. Here you go. Sorry, I, I want to <laughs> pull in some numbers that people might. Um, yeah, do it. Uh, so uh, from the class. A class that I took during my master's degree taught by the former uh, president of the Chicago Symphony, Henry Fogel. These are numbers. Revenue as a percentage of the expense budget of an orchestra. Mm-hmm. Of an orchestra, and slightly more specifically, the middle ground of these are going to be the Chicago Symphony. So mm-hmm. one of the orchestras. Yep. Earned revenue, which is ticket sales, um, hall rental like so chicago symphony owns their hall yeah so they can rent it out to people right fees for tours um sometimes this depending on the orchestra includes sales of goods in the symphony store so like chicago symphony has a symphony store little cafe they can account you know if they sell drinks at intermission that's part of earned revenue right at best that is 42 percent sure that's between 34 and 42%. Like you said, ticket sales is right around a third. There's a little more of this stuff that it gets into it. Right. Fundraising is 40 to 55% of that. Yep. 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 And individual donors account for 60 to 70% of that. Right. Fundraising. Right. Yeah. Corporations are like 15 to 20. Yep. And the government is two to five. Right. Um, my, you know, just just yeah. to kind of put that stuff in there. There's also um, endowment. The orchestra does use an endowment, right. which is uh, just just to mention. I mean, endowments are highly limited in what you can actually use them for. I mean, that's from the government. They're an incredibly right? like limited thing, yeah. like, and that's a that's more of a you can't spend anything beyond the interest that the endowment accrues right. typically. My favorite, my, so my favorite anecdote about this topic is that. The reason why the Met in New York exists is because I can't remember who exactly, but it's like one of the rich families, like in America, like like you said, like what earlier, where a like, Rockefeller, yeah, a Rockefeller or a, or a Carnegie or a you know Vanderbilt, or Vanderbilt something. or whatever, um, old money, right? They some dude's wife got jealous of this other dude's wife and her dresses and she wanted her own opera house to display her new dresses in and this dude's like sure honey i'll build you one we've got the money (laughs) in the budget yeah and i'm just like sitting here i'm like that 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 was the impetus for you know the met for for uh lincoln square becoming a thing you know yeah the crazy amount of money these people have where it's like um, you know, like somebody who owns like a Ferrari, they typically own something on average of like six cars or something. Right, right. Somebody who owns a Bugatti right. typically owns a private jet, <laughs> like sixty cars and a yacht. Right, <laughs> like, right, that's right. Like, yeah, it's, it's just and like, it's that whole like difference out. also between like people. We throw we throw numbers out there all the time of like million and billion, but like if you actually sit down and start to like uh, actually visualize the difference between someone who has a million dollars and someone who has a billion dollars, holy shit! Like what? It's crazy. Yeah, it's 
That's why we're socialists. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So this, I mean, and it's not completely off topic because we're we're talking a lot about the what the large issue with elitism in Western classical music is is where the money is coming from. Right. That's that is at its root what what the problem is. All of these because. Everyone thinks that these major orchestras and like opera houses are like doing great and like making tons of money where it's quite the opposite. They're actually just trying to survive as much as like the small places um, because as we said earlier, they're, they're, you know, on a full night where everyone's like supporting them and everything that only accounts for at most 44% of their sales or something like that. You said uh, 42 at 42. best. Yeah. And yeah. Somebody like Chicago symphony, honestly, that number is going to probably be in the mid to high thirties. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And like, you know, the most successful or, and, and we're talking about American orchestras here. Europe's a different situation. They get a lot more um, funding from. Yeah. They, they have a different level of funding, which. Yeah just changes their programming ability. Yeah, exactly. Um, With that being said, like Berlin, Phil still programs a lot of German music, but also that's like, also what they're known for, exactly, which is the like, weird thing. Like appropriately so, because it is a, yeah. And the piano Phil, the, the other thing is that it, in those, I, uh, okay. Have, having been to both of those cities for Vienna, I've been to Vienna much more than I've been to Berlin. Berlin, I was only there for a short time. Um, yeah, but Vienna, I, I was in Vienna for about a month. Yeah. And, there are places in Vienna where you can see new music and new music being performed and they have those things and they publicize those things. And those things exist inside of the classical music bubble. I went to a German rap jazz funk fusion concert in the, in one of the concert halls at the Vienna concert house. Wow. That's cool. Like, (laughs) like they took all of the seats out. It was just a dance floor Scheibstone die Buben, Scheibstone yeah. die Buben. And it was honestly fantastic. The guy freestyled about a lot of things. Um, he was, well, he spoke mostly in German. I, I speak a tiny bit of German. And he, he was freestyling and he was asking for suggestions from the crowd. And he'd be like, I want you to give me a suggestion about this. And they'd just like throw stuff out there. And they gave him like, it was like Wurstel stand, which is like a, a hot dog stand, basically. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. A cock ring was one of the suggestions. <laughs> I don't remember the third. There was definitely a third, but he ran with it. And they were some of the best musicians I've seen, yeah. just communication-wise. They were all, like, some of them were clearly classically trained. Yeah. They were doing great yeah. stuff. It was, like, but you're not going to see that in the United States in a concert hall. Right, you'll see that in the United States in like some other settings, but not right, in, not but in, not in, right, not in like right, right the the second most prestigious concert hall in the most prestigious city for classical music. Right, yeah, precisely. Um, that's that's the difference. Right. Exactly. Also, I chose not to go to like some Vienna Phil concert and something to go to a chamber music concert downstairs once so you know what do i know <laughs> but I, hey they were students and they rocked it no i i, I think europe just has a, a more rounded 
idea or philosophy towards the arts um, where yes. they're, they're more like there's the old stuff. There's also the new stuff. And like yeah. we want to include we want we want both options to be as valid yeah. as the other. They've been attempting to include those things, I think, for far longer than the U.S. has. Yeah. Well, and, um, that, and that and that's kind of an interesting. Um, I don't want to say a problem, maybe a weird dissonance that America is facing right now with major orchestras is that in the you know post world war ii mid 20th century america in terms of western classical music was so well known for its experimentalism and its composers that are you know writing things outside of the box and trying new techniques maybe it was pushed so far and seemingly inaccessible or presented in an ex- in an inaccessible way that I think it's that one. I think it's I think it's presented in an inaccessible way. Yeah. Um because I think America the United States rather is still so much at the forefront of innovation and really has been since about the 50s through until now. I yeah. think they're they're still really more so than they ever have been. Those 80 years are I think very it's the only period in what could be called Western classical music where you cannot exclude American composers. Yeah. Yeah. Every yeah. other period of classical music, you can exclude the American, the United States composers. I would say, I would say that's uh, partially because it was still finding itself as a country. <laughs> You know, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> we had a whole other shtick going on. You know, while Bach was writing, we were in a country. Yeah, yeah. Bach died before a, the United States of America was established. Of course, of course. Right. You know, uh, Mozart died around the time our Constitution was ratified. Right, right. Like we weren't super focused on the arts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, then again, Germany wasn't actually established as a country on its own until, well, later. But you know, Germany, as it exists technically currently, is only as old as what? It's 30 years old. Yeah. But the tradition extends so much further. Right. right. And that's the difference is that our tradition can only extend as far back as if you want to push it, 1492 for the guy who got to the America's third. Um, (laughs) But there's really not a cultural impact of the guy who got there second and the cultural impact of the people who got there first is kind of wiped out. Yeah. Uh. (laughs) And and that's why we're taking down monuments of Christopher Columbus right now. (laughs) And a a, a lot of people. And a lot of people for that matter. you know, uh, we should be teaching history in a different way, but we're yeah, not. But, and that expands to, uh, actually extends to music history and how we teach music history. Actually, though. Um, yeah, as no, we talked about, not, that's the... They're not unrelated. Absolutely. No, it's, it's the thing where if you teach history in a certain way, you end up biased towards a certain idea. Right, yeah. Totally. And yeah. in the United States, we've managed to somehow bias towards American exceptionalism... Uh, white supremacy and Western classical music from Europe is better than 
Western classical music from the United States, even though we're American exceptionalists. It, it, it's crazy what 200 And that mostly Jews wrote that music anyway. <laughs> I was going to say, it's crazy what 200 years of slavery and uh, uh, racial bias will do, but you know. So we're going to fast forward to modern times now where orchestras are still programming composers, you know, from um, late 19th century, you know, I mean, I mean, late 17th century to pre-World War II. We'll just continue using that term. And late 17th century is at best Vivaldi. I just want, sorry. Right. 17th century is late 1600s. Right, right. So what I want to get to is the inaccessibility of the concert hall and possibly how in a weird, twisted fate, how COVID has actually maybe made this boundary um, breakable. Because I see so many professional grade musicians now. I, I, I straight up see like the Facebook page from like the Berlin Philharmonic individual instrumentalist saying, here's a solo piece that I've been working on. Um, accompanied and it's just like out there on on the web for anybody like there you don't have to pay and it's just like available for people to yeah. consume i don't know if that will necessarily attract more people that were i don't know i don't know if necessarily like ticket sales were like a boundary and i think that a larger boundary that we've already discussed is the education of it in that if people grew up learning about Western classical music and not necessarily understanding it. They, they, while also simultaneously like being introduced to pop music, which is jazz. Yeah. Or just like arguably more accessible music. They're going to probably be more attracted to that. Or it's more relatable. It's not that it's more accessible. It's more relatable because they're probably talking about modern issues or modern, um, things that. Well, it's, it's, uh, Hip hop is eminently more relatable than Mozart. Yeah, like at I, least at least for too, at least for the black community, and, and I think for broadly speaking, any minority and anybody who's been oppressed, punk music and hip hop are going to be eminently more relatable yeah. to people who have been oppressed. There are things that are just more relatable to you know people who've been oppressed or are minorities. And Mozart isn't going to appeal to somebody who is worrying about where their next meal comes from. But uh, on at that, the same, like, not yeah, necessarily yeah. saying that's about those groups in particular, but like Mozart isn't really appealing to somebody who's like, I'm oppressed and I'm, you know, Mozart has an incredible emotional appeal. Right. But I think it does have an emotional appeal slightly specific to those who are allowed to you know, have what, small problems. What I'm what I'm maybe more getting at is this idea of of music education and I think classical music is a great way for music education because you have you have a language in which in which it's written in and you can teach it's very teachable. It's very it, it is yeah. you know it's set up for a pedagogical process. And the, the, a large problem, and I think it's something that's currently being addressed with a lot of, um, at least people I know, but largely with 
um, music schools in Chicago right now is that you don't see a lot of people of color performing. Black indigenous people of color. Yeah, yeah. You don't see um, them performing this type of music. And so if you are... And you don't see them writing either. Of course, right. So if you're a child growing up and you know, this, this art form speaks to you and you, you know, you really, you know, whether you see it as a career or not, I'm not even speaking of that. I'm just saying, if you see it as a form of expression, yeah, but then, but then you don't see someone that looks like you. um, Right. It's uh, the the idea that like, this only applies to the performer. It doesn't, it applies to the, the people who want to donate, the people who want to go to these events, the people who, the people who decide to spend their, $25 $25 on a date, you know, $50 for two tickets on a date night to the symphony, right? Like a week. And if they do that a week, you know, that adds up, man, that, that, well, one, it adds up Two, again, going back to the, the class that I had with Henry Fogel, he talks about you turn, you turn the, the, the way that you create a sec- successful donor program is you turn the people who are buying, single tickets into subscribers you turn subscribers into low-level donors and you turn those low-level donors into high-level donors yeah, yeah. you you, you, you move them, them through a, you yeah you up. work them up as they you know work up the socioeconomic ladder right right you know, because if you can get some look if if a 28 year old you know two 28 year olds are married and working and they they decide to go to the symphony for a date night mm-hmm. and they do it a couple times a year and they go this is nice if you have a way to turn that right. into oh this was nice and you know we really liked it and this person came up and talked to us about this and we really found that interesting and then we you know decided to subscribe so we're right. going to every concert you know we're we're going to you know Whatever the season 30 concerts is. a year. Yeah, it's about yeah. 30. I mean, it's about a 30 week contract for this CSO, yeah. which is about as much as you're going to get. Uh, the Minnesota Orchestra is on par with that. New York Philharmonic's on par with that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Boston, LA, you know. So I'm, say they're going to 30 concerts a year and yeah. then they, and then they go, they're, they're a subscriber and they get a, you get a few extra perks with that and then they move in. And the problem is that a lot of this isn't aimed at, black indigenous people of color right a lot of it is aimed at established money right not new money right where our society and our economy has not exactly been friendly right to black indigenous people of color yeah and that has created a system where they don't have old money right exactly. if they have money it's new money because Frankly, they weren't allowed to participate in all of the great wealth grabs of American history. Right. Um, and this is where I, I'm very torn on like pre concert talks because I've had some phenomenal, mm-hmm. I've had some great pre concert talks. I've also had some where I've walked in, I've listened for five minutes. I'm like, why would, why are any of these people still here? Like, like it's, it's, yeah, <laughs> like, I'm with you. Yeah, because, and, and I think that's why I, I actually believe that. Because instrumental music, because there are no words to it, it inherently does not carry meaning to it. 
so having preconfidence. There is such specific meaning to each specific person that right. you. It's so hard to. But that's why having a really good pre-concert talk it yes. allows it to become so much more accessible to a larger population. That it <laughs> having good speakers is a great. Um, it, it's just a great uh, asset. It's a it's a huge. It's something that needs to be considered. One of the best assets to any artistic program. Yeah. Any artistic. I mean, generally. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so Minnesota Orchestra, I, I I believe they still do. Yep. They talk about a piece for the first half of the performance. They do some examples. They um, conduct through a few things. They talk about it. Talk about the history of the piece. All of these different aspects. And then the second half, they play it. I went to a lot of those as a as a child. Um, uh, I think the funny thing is I, I think my parents enjoyed them more than I did. I, I enjoyed them a lot, don't get me wrong, but I think my parents who are not classically trained or even really musicians at yeah. any significant level, mm-hmm. uh, they really enjoyed it. And what's funny is my dad, who is, he'll tell you he's tone deaf. My dad found those concerts and they were called young people's concerts, but realistically they could be marketed to anybody. My dad has always had a very high interest in history yeah, and yeah. events and, you know, cause I think that's effect. really belittling to call it a young person's concert. I think it should be, it I, don't, I don't know what the, like the correct term would be, but like it should be um, something that like it, it invites a large population to like come like learn about so, something if you're like interested. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the funny thing is that they felt they needed to bring me to be validated to go to those concerts. Where yeah, it's like yeah. honestly, like it really is demeaning to parents and people who want to learn more about this to call those young people's concerts. Yeah. yeah. Because there is a certain amount of that that like I knew in not I okay, at that age I didn't know. But later I do know it. And I'm obviously not going to go to those concerts now because I just don't want to sit through a music history theory lecture and then hear a piece. I just want to hear the piece. Yeah. Because if you're playing a standard work, I've already read about it. I've done research. Like, there are, like I know what's going on. I have access to right. the Oxford Music. Right. Right. You know, right. database and Naxos and all these things. Like, I don't need you to tell me about this. Okay, I can like find here, out. But like, here, here's but the thing: other is like, people do exactly, exactly. That's my point here. Is yes. like that. So like, my parents loved those concerts. Yeah, and I loved them as a kid. And but I think the funny thing is that like, they would continue to go to them. Sure. Well, and why wouldn't they? Because if they enjoyed them, why wouldn't they yeah. continue to go to them? Because like, they're called young people's concerts. Well, yes, exactly. So the, 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 the bright, so the but my parents music. also want to point out with just specifically with my parents, they don't go to the Minnesota Orchestra ever. Really? They go to the opera. Um, they have season tickets to the opera. They go to every opera performance. Okay. Yeah. Which is you know a different thing, but they also uh, opera is like for what I mean. There there are reasons, but opera. From a from a historical and general populist standpoint, has always been perceived as more accessible than just a symphony orchestra concert. 
Most, I, mostly due to, I would say, the fact that there's a story that you can follow and we can like piece the you know the puzzle together in that regard. I think it's funny that, okay, so like for me personally, I think in order of things I want to do, chamber music, opera, orchestra, solo, actually no, okay, chamber music, opera, orchestra, orchestral musician, solo career. Yeah. Um, I was playing with solo career or orchestral musician, but frankly, both of those are equally unappealing to me. Yeah. What I I would actually love to play in an opera pit. I yeah. love playing in a pit. It's it's a lovely, unassuming role you get to play. You get to be a part of something really cool. And right. You, right. you get to have artistic validation that isn't there in a symphony orchestra. Right, right. I also think, for me, I play the cello. I have played in orchestras for... I'm 23 years old. I've played in orchestras for about 15 years. Mm-hmm. I've played cello for about that same amount of time. I've played in very, very good orchestras for about 13 years. Yep. And I, I don't care about playing in orchestra. Yeah. When I go to a concert, I would rather go to a chamber music concert or a ballet or an opera than I would a symphony orchestra concert. Sure. As somebody who is so extremely couched in the tradition of symphonic music that sure. you would think, why would he not want to go to a symphony concert? I would rather go, I paid standing room multiple times to go to the Vienna Staatsoper yep. and the Vienna Ballet, the ballet that performed at the Staatsoper mm-hmm. and that, but I didn't pay standing room multiple times for the Vienna Philharmonic play. Yeah. I went instead to a chamber music downstairs in a different concert hall with students. Yeah. But it, it, yep. I have certain tendencies, and no, I, I want totally to make agree. Very like, clear in that I would rather go to opera, ballet, chamber music before a symphonic concert. The amount of time, some of that is yeah. in the presentation. Right, right, totally. The amount of times that I've been to, I since living in Chicago, I've I've lived in Chicago two years. I've been to. Three Chicago Symphony concerts, I think. I have seen 20, 30 chamber performances in Chicago since I've been here um, for a year and a half. But, like, in, in part of that is uh, it's accessibility. Like, how many times, like, how often are chamber, you know, concerts available? Almost every night of the week. Um, there was a point where yeah. I was going to a concert every night of the week. And then I had to scale back because I was like, holy shit, like this is this is too much. Like I got to I got to find time for well, myself. And for and both I- of us, the accessibility thing is a huge issue because we both work in the service industry. Uh, that's a huge thing, too. So like and so like if you like you can go to the Chicago Sim, like they have because it's weekend you know, concerts. Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Sunday matinee like you can't go to those all the time but if you can go to a random chamber music concert on Tuesday night when you don't work correct makes absolutely. a huge difference absolutely totally so that was the thing it was like yeah my weekends were 
typically dedicated to me, like, you know, I, I call it my day job, but it's really my night job. It's called uh, making bills. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's paying, yeah, exactly. It's paying bills. So, you know, I, you know, paying bills at the bar on the weekend. And then during the week, Monday through Thursday or Monday through Wednesday, essentially, I was able to uh, go to um, chamber concerts in, that was at various venues across um, Chicago. Right. So, um, I want to, and I want to somehow tie this back to a point I was trying to make like way earlier, and this is kind of the closing point, I guess I want to make with um, elitism. Yeah, okay. with with elitism and how I think, in a weird way, I think COVID can kind of break this boundary down because everyone's posting concerts on the internet now, and everyone's live streaming, and every and the accessibility of the internet is unfortunately not universal with that being said there's there's so much with with now all performing arts being on the platform of the internet there's seemingly a lot more accessibility with it so i think if there's a time for to like in a way educate people but it's not so much like hey here's what you've missed like let me tell you about this but more so just like promote your work in a way that will capture people and want them to listen and engage them in a way that will relate to and i'm not telling i'm not like proposing that work needs to be more milk toast or like bland so it like right no, no yeah I, no i get that I, I i am simply saying that the internet is now the the platform in which you know performances are being uh promoted and here's a chance for new and classical, like specifically new music with classical music to have a platform of like, oh, it's not being performed in this like really obscure spot that it usually is. And it's, it's just in the foreground now. One of my biggest things with chamber music, which is personally my favorite form of music, chamber music is I think one of the things that can definitely bridge this gap we are talking about. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing is like when chamber music takes an initiative and goes outside of a typical performance venue. Yeah. That's one of the most interesting things for me. When chamber music goes to a place like uh, Brit's Pub yeah. in Minneapolis and performs on the lawn right. at Brit's Pub and just performs on the lawn and people can drink and talk through it right now right. i'm sure people aren't really talking through a whole ton of that because it's minnesota orchestra musicians right. playing right. you know chamber music pieces but at the same time it's almost about getting chamber music back to the idea of it was so a jazz like second a well, jazz like was, chamber music idea of yeah chamber music can be performed in these certain settings and it doesn't have to be this concert hall it can be a bar in midtown it was it can just, yeah like, dude, it was a, um show up do a thing like if it a lot of chamber, i don't know a lot of chamber music was salon music originally like that's, that's like the, the original and a lot of like solo vocal works you know like art song was like salon music originally yes and absolutely. now it's and that, i mean that and that's and I, but but like that's I, I don't know I don't want to say that's like beside the point but I I feel like we've we've 
we've worked that idea of like putting class like the standard repertoire in like a different space and it almost brings it to the new like a new what i'm and so then this comes more to like the composer point of view is like i think we need to be writing music again i'm not purporting that we need to be writing like milk toast like super like easy listening music but we need to be writing music that people can just like have there and like tune in and out of like it's yes. and, and it's like and and it's and not about milk toast my my point is more about venue which i think right right covid is dealing with because covid is breaking down the venue barrier right, because right, people exactly. are being forced to go online interact in a very different way which is online right and the i i think the venue thing can really help with the the idea of the like like breaking down the barrier between like that academic type stuff and yeah, what you know yeah, and, yeah. and and while not doing you know milk toast stuff right you know right. well you can do challenging works in a setting that's different than a concert hall right and i think that's that's something that and we all, talked a little bit about alternative performance spaces like um, electronic soundstage, um, right. elastic arts. There are a few other uh, beat kitchen. You know, we we've talked about sure. these these places and right that it, it can definitely exist. It can definitely happen. It's the it's the idea of making those things more and more accessible. Right. And I uh, frankly, I I don't think what we do as Western classically trained musicians is ever going to be popular. It's, it's, it's at this point, it's not going to be a thing that's like, it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that though, because I look at groups like, um, why music that, Oh, and, and eighth blackbird that somehow like they bridge this gap of like, art. Music what I mean by and- popular is not, I just mean in a sense of numbers. Oh, I mean, sure. just like, yeah, it, sure. it's just never going to approach what it was pre world war two. Of course. Yeah. Because, and, and that's just, shifted. yeah. Yeah. No, no. Tastes have shifted in a certain way. And I think a lot of this has to do with like the, the whole, like classical music is dying thing is just not real one. Two, it's based on the premise that classical music has to be as popular as it was when there was no recording technology and tastes were significantly altered towards high, sorry, rich people, not high class. I was going to say high class. No, rich people who were monarchs. Right. Now, music is populist. Right. So guess what? You know academic right. music tastes are not going to prevail. The thing is that we can, I, I think classical music can change that enough to become relevant again. It's not going to be yeah. as popular as pop music or whatever country music is right now or whatever. But you look at, or but you, but you look at, like, group, you look at a group like, uh, like Bon Iver and I know you have your opinions about them, but like, they're super cross genre and like they're yes. they've they've implemented a lot of elements of like they've collaborated with a lot of people that are like in the new music scene. Uh, yes. They've they've worked with groups like Eighth Blackbird and they've even some like Kanye West has worked with Caroline Shaw. Exactly. You know, exactly. They, it's one of those things where it just goes. 
artistry yes, is recognized people... where artistry happens. Like yes, it's it's absolutely not, like artistry will always be recognized when it happens. Um, and 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 it's and it's maybe and maybe the I don't know maybe the point I'm just trying to make with um, and I don't even think you're refuting this, but the point I'm trying to make with this idea of the internet being a platform is it's it's a chance for it's a chance for new music and for um classical western classical music artistry to like i feel like it's it's a um what do you want to call it? like a second chapter like it's like it's like all right guys we fucked up the first time let's it's a well, yeah like let's let's <laughs> we have this chance to like do it right that now now again like we we can actually like do I it I can get on board with that. I we, think we can do it in a way that that people will respond to it. Yeah, I think oh there's there uh, to bring it kind of back to the performers being elitist thing. Yeah. Yep. As as you know the resident performer on this podcast. Sure. The the thing is that performers have to be convinced that these things are real. And I don't yeah. think a lot of performers under the age of 50 are going, okay, all of them over the age of 50, not going to, not all, but like, you know what I mean? Right, right, right. Vast, vast majority not going to deal with this conversation basically about yeah you know the, the performance bias i don't think there are a lot of performers under the age of 30 that are going to deal with this performers have performers and composers have tried to combat what we're talking about the elitism yeah in the 50s they tried to combat it in a in a very you know provocative way. Yep. In the late '60s and in the late '80s, I'm I'm kind of going by movements here, but you know the the they they have tried to combat these things we're talking about, but it hasn't hit mainstream in the performer sense. In the composer sense, I think it has resonated. Yeah. And there are composers going. I want to do these things and I want to expand my tastes and my, you know, use of certain things, but performers have not reached that point where they're expanding. And, and that's, I, I think where performers have issue is I, I think you really have to look at people under 30 in this industry yeah. to create opportunities for new music mm -hmm. um, as performers for new composers you can have your pick i mean they're they're all over the place like you, you can go anywhere with that i mean that there are so many new composers and there's right. so many great composers out right. there but as a performer i i think it's harder as a as a composer to find a a performer for your work now than at any other point in history, probably. Yeah. Yeah. And that I think is the biggest problem with the expansion of 
Western. Well, and that that definitely plays into um, our conversation about composer performers that we've had, and how a lot of times where if I want something performed, I'll I'll try and do it myself, or I'll know what performer I have in mind before I do it. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Because if you write anything for cello now, it better be with me in mind. Oh, you know it is. Um. <laughs> I know it is, but I just want to keep telling you that. <laughs> so, conclusion? I don't know. Not that. No, well, like, what, no let's let's do a hard cut to that. Yeah. 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 Conclusion. Um, financials are a big part of this. Yeah. They're a weird part of it as well not i wish they weren't but they are so a large yeah, it's, a large it's, it's, reason it's, why it's from a performer's standpoint it's the idea that i can't make all the money so let me let me say something before you make please yeah so unfortunately a lot of this comes down to money and the large reason why and, th- and this is no surprise. Like, we know this. A lot of people who are listening probably know this. And we're not trying to, like, break any ground. But it was honestly just us to, like, discuss this. The reason why money is such a large factor in why new music isn't programmed as much as music predating World War II. Absolutely. It, and for performers, the thing is that to get a consistent paying job as a musician you have to go through standard repertoire which is these old things that make money there's a cyclical thing that happens here it goes back to that circle jerk thing that i was talking about i know know it's like a really grotesque image but like it's it's true i mean who doesn't love a good circle (laughs) (laughs) no it's just like it's it is what it is it's it's like it's Oh God, it, it's so much that of like these people trying to run a business out of a nonprofit. I mean, of, look, yeah. the CSO is legitimately a nonprofit. Right, 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 right. And you yeah. can't create a business out of a nonprofit. Right. And we've you're not going to turn a profit on a nonprofit. Right. It's right there in the title of the <laughs> of the organization. We don't get a profit. Non. And and like, and we've talked no the numbers problem. like it's it's so true. It's just like none of like even the most successful orchestras and like opera houses are they're not. I wouldn't even say struggling, but like ever you know they're every year they're they're fighting for their uh fin- uh, their financial. They're support. they're not. Yes, absolutely. They're yeah. not struggling, but they are as those orchestras. They're constantly fighting for yeah. more money and it's it goes well beyond ticket sales as we've as we've established and the the thing that i i I say as a performer is if you want a steady job work your ass off get into an orchestra or study your ass off and work your ass off and get into a position at a university right Right. if you want a steady job both of those are probably (laughs) the the most uh, uh, they're they're the most antithetical to what we've been talking about. Right. Today. Yes. They're the most establishment jobs that really don't, you know, attack the problem of classical music. 
and, and I guess Western we are kind of like purporting the uh, anti-establishment side of yes. the uh, uh, classical Western classical music world here. Um, which, if you didn't believe there was one, now you know. Um, <laughs> we but, exist. Um, but it's it's a battle because without these major organizations, then everything would tank in a way. Yeah, or or, not- or or everything would go under, and then what? Then it would be a grassroots movement. Um, yeah, it's one of the, it's it's a grassroots movement of classical music. I don't think survives. I'm not gonna. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. Yeah. I think it survives in a really iffy way, but not in like a way that like blues can survive. It would be tough. Um, I feel like it could. It would be really aggressive, though. Yeah, it would be something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I almost want to see it and like maybe it'll happen. And if it does happen, <laughs> I almost want to see it just as like an experimental thing. Like, right. And if it does, ooh, and if wow. it, <laughs> yeah, like if it does happen in our generation, I'll be like, yeah, I'm here for it. Let's go. Like, <laughs> join us next time, whenever that will be. Um, as always, I'm Austin. And I'm Matt. Uh, see you later. <laughs>